we've been making our way through the book of Revelation. And uh, man, God has been using it in a big way in, in my life personally, but in the church that I get to pastor as well. And uh, man, I mean, I'm hearing stories from all of our campuses. I, I get to be a part of a team meeting. We get to hear kind of what is God doing with through this, through this uh, study and revelation, what is God doing as we work through these difficult texts? And, you know, I'm, I've kind of got a grudge, a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. Pat waited 20-something years to preach through revelation, gave it to me day one on the job. All right, so uh, you guys can, you know, thank you for that later. Uh, but anyway, man, uh, we've been working our way through it, and God's just been using this like crazy. And, uh, man, this, this book has been awesome. We've seen a whole lot, haven't we? I mean, we've unpacked a whole lot. Like, the, uh, you know, we've worked through Jesus's kind of diagnosis of the seven churches there in Asia Minor. We've, uh, man, we've gotten these visions of the throne room and seeing Jesus magnified there, the worship that takes place, of which if everyone in this room that knows Jesus Christ will be a part of one day, amen? Man, it's just been amazing to see everything. We've, in the last several weeks, we have been working through, you know, the seals being opened and the trumpets being blown as we've seen God's judgment against sin, and it's just been, it's been a lot. Last week, even, looking at that text where all the kingdoms of the world get dissolved before Christ's righteousness and his authority and his sovereignty, they all become the kingdom of Christ. And we see that the nations are raging, and, and we've seen this vividly. It didn't take much for us to kind of put ourselves in that text, did it? I mean, this morning, if you opened up your phone and scrolled one time in any news feed, you see the nations raging. Right, we, we see the devastation, we see the sin struggle that has been present since that bite in the garden. And, and it does, it's not hard for us to feel just the weight of this text before the judgment of God coming against sin, all sin comprehensively. And so I just wanna stop this morning before we, we're in this kind of a natural break, before we jump into the bold judgments in chapter 12 and we get in all of these, you know, these, uh, just the, the rest of Revelation, we're kind of in this natural break, this position to really stop and to ask ourselves the question, what do we do with all of this? Right, like what does it, what difference does it make? What difference does it make that we see, man, uh, you know, this judgment coming against sin, what difference does it make that we see the nations raging in our lives today? You know, I don't believe that revelation was just given to us so we could have this kind of contemplative kind of forecasting of way things will be. I think revelation was written to real people in a real time for a real purpose. It was written to change not just how we think about what's coming, but how we think about today. It changes today. And so as I, I have a four-year-old daughter, you know what Revelation's doing in my life? It's making me ask the question, Lord, how in the world do I raise Lottie to live and, and walk faithfully in the midst of this kind of gathering storm of society and culture before the judgment of God poured out on sin? How do I, how do I raise her to know Jesus and to walk with Jesus and to love Jesus and to, and to be effective in the, you know, in the area of, of influence the Lord will give her? How do, I, how, do I, how do I raise her up and send her out to walk hallways faithfully for Christ? How do I? How do I live in such a way in the midst of all of the raging of the nations and the cultural storm that we find ourselves in, in the currents of society that change with every, it seems like 
Every day, something new, some pressures coming against the church. How do I live faithfully? How will I finish my ministry faithfully before the Lord? You say, listen, I believe that the way we go forward is we go back. The way we go forward is that we go back. I want you to look at a text with me that should be uber familiar to everyone in this room and if you're online with us as well. That all of us probably know, this comes out of Matthew 28, and it says this, Jesus came and said to them, this is the disciples gathered, much like we're doing in this room, the, the believers, the saints have gathered together, and it says this, this is all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Don't forget this. We, all, we often go to go and make disciples, and we forget the authority in which we do that. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and listen to this, make disciples. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. At this point, what was the last thing Jesus commanded them? Go make disciples. And look at this, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, I think when Jesus said those words, that wasn't contingent on a cultural context. Jesus didn't say these things because of what was going on there or that, you know, it fit the kind of society in which he was speaking these words into. When Jesus said that, that trumped all cultural situations we could find ourselves in. When Jesus said that, it trumped any kind of sociological storm we could find ourselves in. It trumped any kind of ideology or any kind of indoctrination that might be happening in culture in that time. You know why? Because he says, all authority in heaven and on earth, and just so you know, that means everywhere and everything in all days. He says, all authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. So you know how I think we, we walk faithfully in the midst of the storm that we find ourselves in? You know how I think that we live lives and raise kids so that we aren't just eaten alive by this, this day and age that we live in, that we're not just swept away with the next tide of culture? We go back. We go back and we make disciples. We make disciples all nations. See, prior to Jesus' ascension, the post-tomb resurrected Jesus. He had gathered his disciples there, and he commissioned them to the ministry and to the mission that he had for the church, that he has for you and me today. He didn't say, go and fill seats, church, although that's good. He didn't say, go and get busy with plans and programs. He didn't say, hey, church, get on Facebook and win arguments. That's not what he said. He said, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. So how do we engage in the middle of the crazy of this world and raise families and love Jesus and remain faithful in our lives? We have to recapture. We have to grasp and revisit and renew our commitment to what it means to make disciples. What it means to make disciples. You see, because I believe the church that will exist and not just exist on, on the ICU, but will exist and will thrive and will have effective ministry, gospel witness in this culture and in any culture moving forward is not the one that simply counts converts, but the one that makes disciples. You see, because disciples change culture. Disciples influence the world. 
And so if we want to be a church, man, listen, that, that makes disciples, that makes disciples, that makes disciples, and when all of the world is raging and the nations are turning their backs on God, that LifePoint Church could be an effective lighthouse of, of light to the world in the midst of darkness, that we could have effective gospel witness. You know what we do? We go back. We go back and we make disciples. But here's the problem. If we believe that to be true, if we believe that the need in our culture today is disciple-making, if it's the effective force of gospel witness in the midst of our culture and any culture moving forward, if we believe that we've got to give ourselves to making disciples, I want you to understand we must first make sure that we are disciples. We've got to be sure that those in the room have a, who have aligned themselves with Christ, who have checked a box, walked an aisle, got dunked in a horse trough, that they are indeed what the Bible calls and classifies as disciples. Are you a disciple? Are you a disciple? If you would with me, would you just flip your Bible page one more time to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 verse 16 through 20, if you know the context of this, we see the genesis of Jesus's public earthly ministry. Jesus' baptism by John declared that, man, all the promises of God, all the prophecy up to that point could be trusted, that this man was indeed who God had foretold he was. His leading into the wilderness and his conquering of sin and temptation there for 40 days by Satan, declared war against the enemy. And now he goes and he gathers a team together. He puts together a, a group of people, a misfit group of toys who would turn the world, as it says in Acts, upside down. This group would, would change the world, would walk faithfully in the midst of, uh, listen, culture hasn't changed, really. In every day, in every age, there have been cultural pressures that the church has had to be faithful in the midst of. It hasn't really changed. Maybe the label has changed and the emphasis has turned, but the culture has always been bent against Christ. Scripture promises it's always going to be a remnant. And Jesus pulls together a remnant in this text, a group that would change the world forever. And I want us to look at this. If we're going to be a group, if we're going to be a church, both here and across our campuses, internationally, locally, man, that walks faithfully in a day where faithfulness is not something that's easy to find. We're going to be a church that's effective when many are folding. We've got to be a church that understands fully what it means to be a disciple. So let's look at this text together, Mark 1, 16 through 18. And it says this, it says, passing along the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. It says, and Jesus said to them, two words I want you to remember, and we're, this is going to be the bulk of our message today. These two. Follow me. It says he went to them and he said, follow me. And I will make you to become fishers of men. And immediately. They left their nets and they followed him. 
follow Jesus. You know, several years ago, um, my first year on staff, I've been around here for almost a decade now, and uh, they haven't fired me yet, so uh, I guess that's a good thing. Um, And, uh, you know, my first year on staff here, I I was 22 years old, um, and Pat came into my office one day, and I was a middle school pastor at the time, and uh, he said, hey, Matt, we... uh, we're going to go to Seattle. I want to, I want to pour into you. I want to get you, you know, continue to help you train and develop in your leadership and in your uh, pastoring. And so we're going to go to a conference in Seattle. Now, one thing you should know up to this point is I wasn't very well traveled at that time. I'd been on one plane my entire life. My wife and I, right after we got married, uh, we went to Haiti uh, on, a, on a mission trip. We drove to Miami, so there was no connection. We went from, uh, from Miami straight to Haiti, and uh, the whole concept and process of airports is very different uh, in, you know, Miami and Haiti. And so anyway, at the least it was at the time. And so I hadn't traveled much. And Pat says to me, Matt, we're going to go to Seattle. So I am, I mean, stoked. I'm so pumped. I'm, I'm excited. I'm ready to go. When time came, we, uh, you know, we, we began to navigate the airport. Now, if you know anything about Pat, uh, he's not an easy guy to kind of pin down. You know what I mean? He's, he's a little bit like a squirrel. And, uh, and, and, and if, you are, if you've never been somewhere for the first time, uh, you know, you've not traveled a lot, if you've never been to a certain place or navigated a certain location, your, uh, I mean, your confidence and your sense of direction is largely determined by the one that you're with, if you know what I mean. So me and Pat start navigating the airport and uh, we're making our way through, you know, just getting our, our baggage checked in. We're, by, we're getting our, our boarding passes. We're going through the security and through the terminals and all that, getting to our gate. And I'm doing my best the whole time to keep my eyes on Pat. You know, I, I, I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what was going on, but I knew that if I kept my eyes on Pat, I'd get there okay. Well, the problem with this is that Pat wasn't keeping his eyes on me. Okay, Pat's just going, he's buzzing through, he gets to the gate, and uh, I'm just, I'm asking people, hey, where's, where's the gate at, you know, where's, and this is B&A, it's not that big, you know, and so anyway, I'm, I find my way there, we were able to get on the plane fine, and we made our connection fine, and then we get, going into Seattle, we begin to make our descent, and I kid you not, to this day, I've traveled a whole lot since then, we've been all over the world, lots and lots of planes, I, to this day, have never experienced a storm like the one that we flew into. We literally were flying into the mouth of what seemed to be the most beastly storm imaginable. The whole back end of the plane at times was going, and and then it followed by like these moments of extreme drops of altitude. You know, the whole, like all the wings, I'm looking at the wing is going like this. I'm like, that's not good. I don't know a lot about planes, but it seems like they shouldn't move that much. We got a little bit lower, and I'm looking out the window, and I start to see, like, the Puget Sound there just, like, whipping up over the roads. I can see the waves crashing out, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. So I'm just glued on Pat at that moment. In that moment, I'm trying to suck as much confidence out of this man as I can. I thought, okay, if, if he's good, then maybe I'm just overreacting. Right? And, and so, I mean, it just, and then drops of altitude the whole way down. I look over at Pat, and he's looking over at me, and he leans over, and he says, Matt, I don't think we're going to make it. I'm like, you won't believe. That is not what you want to hear in that moment, church. That's not what you want to hear. If you're in the room, or if you're watching online, and you're looking for confidence in the storm, Pat's not your guy, okay? He is, he's not 
He's not your guy. Now, I, I laugh about that story, and we laugh about that today. Pat swears they had to go get a crowbar to get me up off that seat. But I tell you that story because I believe at the heart, at the heart of that story, the heart of that illustration is a vivid picture of what it means to be a disciple, a vivid picture of what it means to follow. You know, in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament, 269 times you find this word disciple. And the original context of this word, the original language in which it was written, this, this, this word carries with it this idea of being a learner or, or, or one who follows or just someone who, uh, who follows after someone else. To be a disciple, if we really want to understand then what it means to, to be a disciple, we need to understand then what it truly means to follow. And here's the point, church. You don't have to know where you're going. You don't have to know what's coming next. You don't even have to know how to respond in the moment, but you can know based on the one you're with, the one that you're following. This is the idea of what it means to be a disciple. When Jesus calls his disciples here in Mark, it says that he was passing alongside the Sea of Galilee when he called Simon, Peter, and Andrew, casting their nets in the sea. And I want you to see two words that he said here. He says, follow me. Follow me. This original language here means literally, come after me. Come after me. Follow me. Look to me. You don't have to know where you're going. You don't have to understand how to navigate the storms of culture and all of the, the, the waves of society that are smacking against you and in your mind and your home, but you can follow me because I know, because I'm in control. Follow me. So at the root of what it means to be a disciple, you have to fully know what it means to follow. With these two words, church, with these two words, follow me. Jesus turned the world upside down and changed it forever. The reason we sit here today is because a small group of people understood what it meant to be followers, what it meant to follow Jesus. You see, I think if we understand this, if we would get at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus as it's revealed in the New Testament, we can be disciples who make disciples. We can have effective ministry. We can walk faithfully into the gathering storms of our society and culture and not just exist, church, but have effective ministry. Listen, I don't, I don't just want, the reason we planted LifePoint Arrington wasn't just so that we would gain a few more seats or so that we would just kind of exist as a building and a facility out there one day. That's not why I planted that church. That's not why we planted that church. I don't just want to exist I want to thrive. I want to see people come to know Jesus. I want to see people you know, hear, the, hear the Bible preached and surrender their lives to Christ. I want to see kids discipled and raised up. There will be future pastors and missionaries. That's why we did that, and that's why we're here today. And so if we want to know, if we want to be that kind of church that doesn't just plant Arrington, but the next wave of churches, we have to know what it means to follow. And so there's two points I want you to see based on those two words. That's all we're going to do. Two words. Follow me. Two points for us to look at today that I believe capture the heart of what it means to be a disciple. That if we give ourselves to being these things and, and, and embodying these things and living out these things, being radically committed to these things, we too could be disciples who make disciples. Two points. 
we would have a radical departure and a radical devotion to the person of Christ. A radical departure from everything, this world, all the attachments of this world, and a radical devotion to the person of Christ. So I want you to look at this first point, follow, to have a radical departure. When Jesus said, follow me, it says his disciples immediately dropped their nets and pursued him. You know, in order to follow anything in life, you have to leave something, right? In order to pursue anything, there is something you are walking away from. It, by nature of what it means to follow someone, it means that you are walking away from something else. When Jesus calls his disciples here in Mark 1, says immediately they left their nets, they follow him. And in this text, you know, it says that they were fishermen. Now, I know these guys get a bad rap, right? I mean, their, their reputation precedes themselves as not being uh, at the top of the economic or the sociological totem pole of that day. But here's what we know about these guys. The trade that labeled their lives was a very lucrative one. Here's what I mean, here's what I mean by that. In the first century church, fish was always on the menu. It was always on the menu. And so to fish the Sea of Galilee was not a bad business plan. And we know that this was something that they were apparently pretty successful at. Why? Because they had a couple things that were not easy to come by and weren't cheap. They had boats and they had nets. And so what we know about these disciples is that they were probably brought up into this trade. This was a family business that they were brought up into. Yet at the call of Jesus to follow me, it says that they left all of that behind. So when Jesus called them, I want you to understand, they were leaving a whole lot. They, they were leaving comforts. They were leaving what was familiar. They were leaving what they knew. This, is, this was their identity. It says they were fishermen. This was who they were. So this call of Jesus meant to depart from comfort, from career, from possession, from family. They didn't know where they were going or what was in the details, but they knew the one that they would be with. And this is at the heart of what it means to be a disciple, that you would have a radical departure. This call of Jesus was to have a radical reorientation of their lives around the person of Jesus, to have a radical departure from everything they knew. And this church is the same call for anyone in this room or anyone online who would say, I want to follow Jesus. He is calling you to the same thing. A radical departure from everything that you hold. The things that capture and grip your heart. Jesus says, follow me. Release your grip on those things and pursue me. There has to be, if we want to be disciples, we ever hope to make disciples. We have got to be a people who make a radical departure from everything in this world. This is what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8. A few chapters later, he clarifies a little bit more about what, what he's getting at. He says this in verse 34. He says, if anyone would come after me. You remember that word, that phrase means to follow me. Come after me. If anyone wants to be a follower of mine, anybody wants to be a disciple, if you want to come and align yourself with the teaching of Christ and come under his lordship, this is what he says to you as well, church. 
let him deny himself. Deny yourself, take up his cross and follow me. I think we sometimes, man, we have like doled down the meaning of what's, what's behind that phrase, take up your cross. We wear them on our necks. We put them on shirts. We got, they're all tatted up. We got crosses on ourselves. Listen, if someone in the first century was carrying a cross, they were being led to a place where they would lose their lives. And so what Jesus is saying here, church, is if you want to follow me, you are following me and leaving yourselves behind. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor, theologian, writer, in the 1900s, early 1900s, he wrote this about this idea. He said, the cross is laid on every Christian. Church, I want to make sure you hear this. If you've come to Christ, you've checked the box, and you've not carried a cross, you are not a Christian. Because what it means to follow Jesus is that the cross is laid on you. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that the dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter, as we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give ourselves over, give our lives over to death. Check this out. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. He bids him come and die. When Jesus' words left his mouth to those fishermen on the bank, casting their nets, follow me was a bidding to come and die. And there's a reason why I said radical departure. Because it's comprehensive. It touches every area of your lives, your familial life, your work life, your ambitions, your dreams, all of it subjected to the lordship of Christ. There is no following Jesus, church, listen to me, and retaining yourself. When we follow Jesus, discipleship means that we leave all of ourselves behind for all of Christ. There is no half in and half out. And I think this is what we've lacked in the Western church is that we have this idea that coming to Jesus means I come with my terms. I come with a negotiation position. I say, Jesus, you can have this, but not this. I want this from you in exchange for this. That's not how this works. That's not how Jesus plays this. Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, you deny yourself. You capture your ambitions. You capture your dreams. You capture your hopes for your family. You capture your weekends. You capture your calendar. You capture your budget. You capture all the things that grip you, and you lay those under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You lay those on the cross. You know, I read a story about some soldiers in the Crusades who, before they would go off to battle, it says that they would go in mass form down to the riverbank, and all of the soldiers would go down into the river to be baptized. 
And as they would go in, on a count of three, they would all submerge themselves under the water. They would be plunged under the water fully as to devote themselves to Christ before they would go off to battle. But there's one part of the story that's a little different than what you would expect. As they would be plunged, as they would be submerged under the water, immersed under the water, they would have one arm with their sword in their hand lifted out of the water. They would go down and the water would cover everything but the one arm in which they would go to kill the enemies that they pleased. They wanted to devote all of themselves to Jesus but one arm. You know, and I started to think about that today. It's not so different in much of Christianity. So many today do the same thing. We come to Jesus and we want to devote all of ourselves to Christ. We come to Jesus and we want to give all of ourselves to his Lordship. We want to follow Jesus. But so many of us have our wallets out of the water. So many of us go down under his Lordship, but we leave our ambitions. We leave our weekends. We leave our hopes. We leave our, whatever it looks like in your life, whatever the thing is that's got a hold of your heart, whatever part of your life that you've not, you've not, uh, you've not put under his Lordship, we have that thing lifted out of the water. We say, Jesus, I want you to save my soul, but don't touch my weekend. I want you to protect and bless, but don't lead me into hard conversations with people around me. Jesus, I want you to live the life I couldn't live, die the death I deserve to die, be, be crucified and resurrected, secure my salvation, but do not tell me how to think about my sexuality and my, my, my uh, yeah, I can't sleep with my girlfriend. I, don't tell me I can't live with my spouse before marriage. Don't tell me how to define my life, Jesus. I want you, but I don't want your leading. I want you, but I don't want your lordship. I want the insurance, but I don't want to be a disciple. That's not how this goes. Jesus says we want to follow him. We have to deny ourselves. We have to deny ourselves. So church, when we hear the call of Christ to follow, we leave everything behind. What if, we would, what if we would revisit that and have just a radical commitment to that? What would your kids see if they saw mom and dad understanding that to follow Jesus means all of my life is his? That I, I radically depart from everything to come under Jesus' lordship. Now, listen to me. That doesn't mean you can't, Jesus doesn't want you to have fun. That doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't want you to go, with, you know, have a vacation or you can't have nice things and that you, you can't enjoy your life. That's not the point. In fact, I want you to understand, see what, what uh, here in Philippians 3.8, what Paul wrote to that church. It's not just begrudging commitment there is something better that we see here. We believe that following Jesus, and we believe that this radical departure is not someone prying my hands off of something, but I drop it immediately and I follow Jesus because you know why? Listen to me. I believe it's better. I believe what I'm going after is better. And that's what Philippians 3 tells us right here. Look at this in 8 and 9. It says, indeed, I count everything as loss. I count it as loss. Because of the surpassing worth 
of knowing Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Listen to me, church. To have a radical departure from Jesus means, and what motivates it, and what fuels it, and what ensures it is that we see Jesus as better. When you begin to see Jesus as Lord, it's beautiful. When you begin to understand the gospel and the realities of sin and the beauty of salvation that comes through faith in Christ alone, to leave my wallet at the cross, to leave my weekend at the cross, to leave my my ambitions and my dreams for my life at the cross seems like a bargain. Because you know what? I leave this, but I get Christ. We get Jesus. We know Jesus. Our salvation is secure in Jesus. It's better. So I just think that maybe if we want to be disciples, we've got to get back to what it means to have a radical departure from everything so that we can pursue the person of Christ. That brings me to the second point. He said, follow me. You see, to be a disciple means to have devotion. It's devotion, and it's not just unplaced devotion or just some like ethereal devotion to some following. It's not, it's not a devotion to a, a kind of a, a ethic or, or some kind of way of living. It is devotion centered on a person. That's why he said in that, he says, follow me. The object of our devotion is Christ. It is Jesus. When his disciples were called, they had to have a radical departure from self and a personal devotion to the person of Jesus. He says, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. This journey into the mouth of the storm, not understanding how to, you know, what it would entail, all the details similar to my, my, my story with Pat. It terminated. That journey terminated on a person. Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. And in our world today, listen, church, there is no shortage of devotion. There's no shortage of devotion. We are devoted to our families. We are driven and devoted by our jobs. I mean, we are devoted to our hobbies, our teams, our shows. And we'll sit and we will not miss a show. It's on our calendar. Our lives are built around a show or a team or a game, right? Or our hobbies. We move things around so that we make sure those things happen. So I want to contend to you, there's no shortage of devotion in our world. It's misplaced devotion. The issue of discipleship is not a lack of devotion. It is a lack of devotion to the person of Jesus. And I just think if we want to be a church that makes disciples, we've got to get back to what it means to love Christ radically. To devote all of ourselves to the person of Jesus. See, I think what 
what maybe the church has lost. I'm not necessarily speaking, this is a capital C church. What the, what the church may have lost in this day and age is effective witness because the world looks on and says, it doesn't even mean that much to you. Your life doesn't revolve around the person of Jesus. We've had this idea that maybe we, we get as close to the world as we can and adapt a kind of lifestyle that the world lives and the world embraces. And maybe they'll, they'll see us as cool and relevant and say, hey, I wanna come over and align myself with their Jesus. And that's just not how it goes. The way we see this playing out is not, hey, uh, man, w- let's go do what they're doing. It's like, why would I do that? Why would I follow that Jesus that doesn't even have a grip on their own lives? That they don't even see as personally valuable enough to depart the things that we know the scriptural teachings call us away from and and, and to pursue wholeheartedly the person of Jesus. See, but when the disciples heard the call, they left their nets and they pursued a person. They pursued Christ. This is central what it means to follow Jesus. When we respond to the call of Christ in our lives, we leave not just our stuff behind, but we leave ourselves behind. And we pursue the person of Jesus. We pursue him. We follow him. This rakes, this rakes against our culture and our society today, though, doesn't it? Today, society says, man, that self-discovery and your personal identity is the most valuable part about you. That's the, most, that's the thing that we celebrate is you be true to you. You do you. You live your truth. You, defi- you find your truth, and you live your truth. But Jesus says, I'm the way. I am truth. I am life. I am the door. I am the resurrection. That's what Jesus says. Jesus says, it's ain't about you. Jesus said, it ain't about your truth. It ain't about yourself. Following me means yourself died. Remember, you follow me. You're devoted to me. You love me. You cannot be a disciple if you do not have a personal devotion to Jesus. So church, let me ask you a couple of questions. You have to have a radical departure from everything in your life if you're gonna pursue the person of Christ. So what are the things in your life that maybe you've not yet departed that are keeping you from truly and fully following the person of Christ? Some of us, I think maybe, we, we, man, we wanna follow Jesus and maybe you truly have authentic faith, but there's something that got a grip of your heart that you've got to get, you've got to let go of by the work of the Holy Spirit in you Maybe you've got to get a bigger and more beautiful picture of who Jesus is and what he truly did on the cross to accomplish your salvation. You need to let go of some things so you begin following him, following him more fully. Maybe for you, it's you need to let go of materialism so you can begin stepping into this freedom that Jesus has purchased for you. Maybe for you, it's that you need to let go of some greed or some, whatever that looks like, some anger or pride, and you need to start stepping into the things that Jesus has purchased for you. That if the world will look at you and see how your weekends are handled, see how your calendars are oriented, see how your budget is formulated, see how the, you know, because here's the thing. Listen, we talk about this a lot. Jesus spilt more ink and spent more time 
on sex and money than anything else in, in, in the Gospels. You want to know why? Because those are the things that people have a grip on and they will not let go. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, if you want to be disciples, if we want to be a church that makes a difference for where we're going, if we want to see revelation and see, and see the reality of the judgment coming against God, against sin, if we want to be a people, ambassadors for the gospel in the areas of influence, whether it be on the line at Nissan or at your dentist office or at your doctor's appointments or on the weekends at the ball field, if you want to be a people who make disciples, who have an authentic magnetism for Jesus Christ, because of our lives that are oriented around the person of Christ, we've got to let go of those things and begin pursuing the person of Christ. Because we believe he's better. Because we believe he is better. Church, I believe we've got to get back to the heart behind those two words, follow me. Follow me. The reason the church has lost effective power is not that cultural challenges have changed as much that the church has abandoned what it means to truly be disciples. If we want to be disciples, we have to have a radical departure and a radical devotion to the person of Jesus. I want to close with a story uh, I heard this week about a... Uh, there was a boy who uh, was sitting in church one day, and towards the end of the sermon, he heard the gospel preached, and towards the end of the sermon, he uh, started feeling this conviction of God, God calling him, like, I want you to follow me. I, I, want, I want more of you. I want you to follow me. So the boy pulls out a piece of paper out of his Bible. And he begins to write down all the things that he's going to do for Jesus. He begins to write down all the things that he's going to leave, all the places he's going to go, all the conversations he's going to have. And after church, he, he walked down the aisle during the altar call, and he laid it down on the altar, believing that there would be this peace in his soul. He put it down on the altar, and he's like, gosh, something wasn't right. He went and sat back down defeated. And Next service, pastor gets to preaching, and he starts feeling this conviction of, God, I want you to follow me. I want you to pursue me. I want, I want you to, 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 to live for me. He begins to get that paper out, and he starts writing down all the things he's going to do for Jesus, all the places he's going to go, all the conversations, all the hard things that he's willing to do for Jesus. He walks up the aisle, and he lays it on the altar, believing there's peace in that obedience, and there's nothing. About this time, he's just getting mad. So after church, he goes up to the pastor and he says, two weeks in a row, I believe Jesus has told me to follow him. And I've, I've written down all the things I would do and all the places I would go and, and the, the links I would be willing to, to take in order to, to follow him. And still I feel defeated. I feel like it's, there's nothing to it. There's, there's no hope here. There's no peace. Pastor reaches down in his Bible and pulls out a blank sheet of paper. Looks down at the boy and he says, Try this. Write your name on the bottom and lay that on the altar. Church, I want you to know, Jesus don't want just a piece of you. He doesn't just want your weekend. He doesn't just want your, he doesn't just want your tip. He doesn't just want your attendance. He doesn't just want the, you know, your mission trip. 
Jesus calls us. He tells us, write your life down and lay that before me. You come to the altar and you lay yourself down before me. You lay your, your life down, your, your parenting down. You lay your jobs down. You lay your ambitions and your dreams down. You leave all of yourself before me. You sign the check and let the Lord make it out. Let him tell you what lengths he's willing for you to go. You let him tell you what conversations he wants you to step into faithfully. You let him tell you what dreams and what ambitions your family needs to put into place in your lives. You let him tell you what obedience he's calling from you for you to step into. You don't make out the terms. We come to Jesus. We lay our lives before him, church. And so right now, I know maybe I'm looking out in a room. Maybe there's people on the other side of a camera lens. I can't even see right now that what Jesus wants from you today is that you would lay your life before him. Some of you, you've been coming to church and your commitment to Jesus centers around your church attendance, your Bible studies, you've never laid your heart before. Scripture says if we would confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And I believe if there's someone in this room today that you've been buying into this idea of Christianity, that you can have this half-hearted abandonment and this half-hearted devotion to Jesus, I want you to hear me say to you, if you've not laid the cross of Christ over your life, if you've not bowed all of you for all of him, you are not a Christian. That is not what it means to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus means that he has all of you. Oh, if we would get this. Man, if we would be a church that says, of course I will give you all of myself because you are so beautiful. Of course you'll have my weekends. We don't have to preach sermons and beg you to come to church. Of course I'm going to church. Of course that my weekends, my calendars are gonna build around community and the person of Christ. Of course, my budget is gonna reflect the Lordship of Jesus. Of course, my kids are gonna be raised up and stewarded in such a way that when they leave, the, when they leave my home, they are gonna know that Jesus was Lord of my life. Of course. So if you're in here today and you've never done that, I wanna call you into you can text the word Jesus. There's, there's a number that'll be on the screen. I don't have it committed to memory. There it is, 551-9800. You can now, as the band's gonna lead us, this altar is yours. You can come and bow before the Lord, ask him to do a work on your life. See, what have I not departed to follow him more fully? What part of my life have I not yielded to his lordship? You can come out the back doors and talk to me. I think Peyton, some of our pastors will be out there. We'd love to just pray over you talk to you about what it means to truly follow Christ. But listen, to follow Jesus means to have a radical departure and a personal, radical devotion to the person of Jesus. Let's be that church. Let's be that church. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. Lord Jesus, right now, God, we come before you and I ask God that you would be the thing centered on our minds you would be our focus, you would be our attention, you would be the object of our adoration right now. Christ, I pray that we as a church would understand we don't have to know what tomorrow looks like. 
We don't have to have all of the answers to how to deal with all of the sociological and cultural challenges of our day. We don't have to know how to navigate the storm of our life that many of us might find ourselves in, but we can know the person of Jesus and commit ourselves to following in the way of Jesus and trust that wherever that takes us, it is better. God, would you do a reorienting, a radical restructuring of our hearts? God, I pray that you would save. I pray that you would heal. I pray you would break addictions. And I pray that you would lift eyes up off of the situations of their lives. They would see the face of Christ today. That we would commit our hearts to following you. Lord. You're beautiful. It's your name we pray. Amen. Amen.